Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. My overall theme or belief about sobriety is really that it is just as unique as your fingerprint. Your sober story, your discovery before recovery, your trial, your salsa, it is so incredibly unique to you. And you can try to match your fingerprint with someone else and you can get a couple of those ridges similarly. But really at the end of the day, it takes you understanding and knowing and being willing to put in the work to figure out what works for you. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb-Lassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Kate Madry. Kate found her sobriety in a slightly different way than most. Growing up, she had an addicted parent and felt like they were villainized when their addiction was revealed. Growing up, she wanted to prove that she could be different from her addicted parent. Her hope was that she would not let her substance use affect her life. That strategy didn't go according to plan. So often she drank, she had the feeling that her standards were nowhere near where she wanted them to be. Then after four years of friendship, Kate's best friend became more than that, fueled by late nights of drinking. Six months later, their relationship was crumbling under booze-soaked fighting and being less than their best selves. Kate began reading and learning about a new way to view her relationship with alcohol. Someone was finally presenting a new perspective on her drinking and even her need to label herself an addict. Through this learning, she attempted to curb her drinking and each time she found her way back to alcohol until finally finding sobriety in the wake of a Thanksgiving blowout with her girlfriend. In the aftermath, they both made the choice to end their relationship with alcohol. Today, Kate co-hosts the podcast, Clear-Headed, The Guide for Sober Care, where she and her partner handpicked the very best out there to enhance or kickstart your sober care routine. This was so much fun interviewing Kate. She has such a unique and fresh view of recovery, and I love that she did not have to hit all the bottoms on the way down in order for her to stop drinking. Her life today is dedicated to helping other people find what she has found and to find what works for them. It is personalized to you and making your life better, which is what she has done. So without further ado, I give you Kate Madry. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm really excited to be with you and to talk and to learn and to share. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you're you're an old pro at this. So I really want to hear about your origin story. Where did you grow up? What was your life like when you were young? I was born in Los Angeles. And when I was six, maybe seven, 
my family decided to move to Nashville. My dad had always wanted to be a songwriter. He's an incredible musician and guitarist. He had the opportunity to go to Nashville and my mom was like, let's do it. I would love to do that. So then I grew up in Nashville and I am thankful for what I was raised around, which was music. But I don't know if you've ever heard this, but people say that Nashville is a drinking town with a music problem. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that, but I, that's a very, I feel like a lot of towns could have some version of that. A hundred percent. That's like kind of what I grew up in. And I don't think it was super different necessarily than anybody else growing up in the US, but it was just like alcohol was always a thing. It was never not a thing. And when somebody wasn't drinking, it was uncomfortable. It wasn't something that I grew up seeing people embrace necessarily. And even in my own family dynamic, any time there was overindulgence or there was turbulence surrounding drinking wasn't uh, met with compassion. It was more met with like villainization of that person succumbing to the substance that is a poison and (laughs) I can sit here now as an adult with all of the things that I've read and kind of the clarity that I have on it. Like, yeah, no, no wonder things got messy when you drank poison and and you said things you regretted or you did things that you wish you hadn't. Back to growing up, that was kind of what I saw. And then I think like most people in my generation and beyond, I mean, I started drinking in high school. I started drinking when I was 15, fill the water bottle up and go to a football game and have your parents pick you up and it wasn't there wasn't a lot to do besides drink and kind of mimic what we saw our parents doing which was alcohol was a reward and it was something to indulge in and so we monkey see monkey do and in my family I knew that alcohol never resulted in anything good Mm. it was always a source of fights it was a source of separation it was a source of hospital visits It was the source of a lot of things. And I knew that I never wanted to be part of that equation. Let me ask you about that. So two-part question. One, what did you know about alcoholism, if anything? And two, when you say that it was a source of pain in your family, how often was alcohol causing problems in your household? Constantly. Constantly. A substance of some kind was causing turbulence. To further paint the picture, I had two siblings, like I I still do have two siblings from my mom's first marriage. They were 10 and 14 years older, so a significant amount older than me. When my mom and my dad wanted to move to Nashville, since they were so much older, they had the option to stay in LA or go to Nashville, and they chose to stay in LA. So I grew up basically as like an only child. So I didn't really have anybody who was like experiencing these things with me or seeing it from and like offering their perspective. So I look at it now and know that it was so constant. But for me, it was just the norm. It was just the average. It was the the roller coaster of addiction was just what I was constantly on in my family. Although I didn't have the vocabulary to say that to myself or like the support group or like other people to validate that that was what I was going through, I still knew I was on a ride and that I was nauseous and that I never wanted to be the person to press that start button again. 
But at the same time, I didn't have the tools or the knowledge or the research or the perspective to understand that it will probably happen if you don't actively try to just not even like let going to an amusement park for the sake of like symbolism, I guess, be an option. I went through life thinking like, I'm never going to go on that one roller coaster. But substance abuse, misuse, dependency, addiction, there are so many different rides and it looks so different. So even just stepping into the circus or the amusement park that is like playing with substances is dangerous. So I was like in the park from 15. I was like, I'm never going on that ride, but I'll go on this one and I'll go on this one. And all my friends are in line for this one. So I'll go stand with them and I'll like partake. I won't be guilty when I don't remember what happened the night before because we laugh about it. And I'll let that be the mass that makes me feel comfortable because at least I'm not on that one ride. Right. I'm not looking exactly like what I had seen. And then when I got into my 20s, like By the time I turned 21, I had a drink order. I knew what I wanted. I also wasn't super picky, but I knew that having the freedom to have a debit card and an ID and a liquor store right at the corner of the street that I had lived on for like three years, it just got more and more and more and still not even to the point where anybody voiced concern for me. That's a really important factor in my story because although I sit here sober, I did not hit a visual rock bottom like we're so used to seeing or cataloging in our heads in order to take a look at your relationship with a substance with alcohol, like to step back. Even up until like, I mean, in my last three months of drinking, I I knew I was at rock bottom. I could feel it, like the the way in which I was so unaligned with who I was and knew I could be and what I was offering my life was so empty in comparison to what I just like knew I could fill it with. But no one else saw that. No one else like questioned that. What were some of the things in your households growing up that you thought were normal at the time, but you now look back and go, oh, that was alcoholism? I can't really answer specifically on being able to label anything alcoholism just because I'm not like I still am not qualified, I feel like to say that. But I can say tendencies that could like lean towards a dependency would be the sneaking, like opening an outside storage container and there being alcohol there, constantly finding things, constantly having that feel um, like a disruption, just even in my nervous system of being like triggered to find that and then not know, do I say something? Do I not? I know this person said they weren't drinking right now, but I've seen this and this isn't usually here. Hopefully that will further build the kind of ride I didn't want to go on. Like I knew if I wasn't sneaking it in my mind, I was like, well, then I'm not that. So as long as I'm not hiding it, then I am not succumbing to that like stereotype. The second symptom is the lack of stability. Right. Emotionally. I think the third symptom is the inability to trust your reality. It's really, really hard for me still to trust when something is going good that... It is not just going to blow up or pivot or change 
probably because I was used to that being the case, that everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, it really wasn't. Words were coming out totally fine. And then all of a sudden, they weren't. They were slurred. And then the panic sets in. And what is this person going to do? And what's somebody going to say? The description that you give is you know, there's a there's a program called Adult Children of Alcoholics, and they have what's called the laundry list. And the laundry list is this rad list that whenever I see people read through it and identify with it, it's always like this light bulb goes off, like, holy shit, how did they know? And like when you read some book that describes your experience and you're like, oh my God, I could have written this. What we've come to understand is that children, adults who grew up in the home with the symptoms you're describing experience a lot of similar things, which are related to trauma and you know, so on and so forth. And so what you're describing is that. What you're describing is the dysfunction that happens when someone in the household who's in charge needs something to get outside of themselves, when they cannot be present for whatever reason. And they may use a whole myriad of things. They may use work. They may use substance. They may use whatever, but the experience is the instability, the fighting, the the change in personality. And so you get a person, like another symptom of adult children is they can read a room like this. Like they can sense, they can sense and they can sense when someone's going to change and they're super in tune with minute facial muscle twitch changes. Like, what was that? What do you, what do you, what do you mean? Because you're rea- you've always have to double and triple and quadruple check your reality. Yes, so true. It's a blessing and a curse, I think, because like I can't and nor do I really want to change my childhood. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I can't go back and unsee or unhear any of that. And there are superpowers that I think I gained through being able to really read people. Now, does it suck that it was because of my own safety or my mental safety? Yeah, that blows. Like, I wish I would have just been able to get that in a healthier, cooler way. But I still have the result of that. And I think that in an odd way, like now that we're talking about it, I'm kind of like thinking about my journey, the ability to read people and it might not have always been accurate either, but like just the overstimulation of really reading people, I think pushed me to want to escape as well. Even though I got that from the situation and from my childhood, it made existing, especially in an industry like the entertainment industry and acting in all that is personality-based and validation-based. And if people like you or not, if you're doing a good job or not, just so, it's so heavy, even if you don't read micro cues and everything, then to have that whammied, I think I just, it probably definitely added to the fact that I was like, well, I need to tune out. I'm just going to do what I've watched be done. And then as long as I don't get to that limit, then I'm fine. Right. I'm fine. Right. Because look, everybody else is doing it and all my friends are doing it. And I'm not, I'm not wrecking a car and I have a job and people love me. And so I'm fine. And then I just wasn't like, I just, I wasn't. And even in sobriety, the 
overwhelm that I feel from people or from situations doesn't subside because you get sober. Life keeps lifing. I think I heard that once and I was like, it really keeps lifing. Life keeps lifing. And thank God it does because you're living and isn't that great. But the overstimulation that I feel sometimes that I think I get to constantly work on is like how to manage healthy ways of taking a breath or tuning out or taking a step back, knowing also that I'm not in the situation that I was as a kid and that I can change the way that I react to things and that the outcome will also change, that I don't have to stay in the definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results in literally any situation. And that is really not limited to like grace and self-forgiveness and self-reflection and just knowing that like, is it more potent living a life sober? Reality is yes, absolutely more potent, but you also have so much sharper blades to cut the potency and slice it up and serve your life well, thoughtful and perfectly done the way that you want to rather than just like throwing it all out. How did you get from Nashville to Los Angeles? I always knew that I wanted to be back in California. A big reason is because my family was still in California. My siblings were there, my aunts, my uncles. I had been so isolated in in a way like of my whole childhood because none of my family was there. The second that I could leave, I did. When was that? Three weeks after high school. Okay. I, I went to California. I hated school and did not have good grades. I hated going to school. A big reason was I would stay up stressed to like four in the morning and then not be able to wake up at seven. And I think my parents were so in their own stuff that they didn't have the bandwidth to really do anything about it. I think I was very hard to even like rein in. Not that I was a troublemaker at all, but I just was so full of adult responsibilities emotionally that I was like, no, you're not going to tell me what to do then. If I'm going to have to like navigate this and be the only one involved in this roller coaster and be talking through things with you guys like as if I'm your therapist and like you're not going to wake me up the next day and tell me to go to school. So by the time I graduated, like as we were, it was approaching and everyone was like, I got into this college and I got into that college. I was like, I didn't even apply to a college. I just didn't. I just knew I wanted to go to California. And my parents were like, you can go, but the only way we're going to help you is if you're enrolled in a school. Like that's the only way you're going to, you're going to do this. So I applied to fashion school because I was like, I can get into FITM. Thankfully I did. I like late enrolled. It was cutting it so close and they helped me move out. I did one semester (laughs) and then I found out how expensive it was. And I was like, why are we doing this game? I... I'm getting auditions. I have an agent. I can work a job. Like I don't need to be in downtown in this really expensive apartment just because it's next to a school that I'm not even passionate about using that degree. Like I can do it if I need to. It was like the first time that I had ever gotten like almost straight A's because I really loved it. And I think I had the freedom to not be in a household where things were so stressful. So I could really like build my routine and not have a lot of disruption. And I was like, I'm gonna drop out. And if you can just like help me while I get a job, I'm gonna figure it out. And I did, and I have. And 
I think the figuring it out was, I mean, isn't it always like an ongoing thing? Like, I don't feel like even when, and I kind of hope I never have it figured out because wouldn't that be boring if you just knew exactly what to do when you were doing it? I mean, I I thought I had it all figured out when I was 15. I never knew as much (laughs) as I did when I was 15. And since then, it's been all downhill. Everything that I know gets more and more complicated. And the more I know, the less I know. So, but my kids tell me that they know everything. So that's, that's, I'm glad that it's uh, moved down a generation. I think the people who think they know the most actually know the least. Yeah. Accurate. So you're in your description in high school, how did, or as you moved to California, did you have romantic relationships and did your drinking or drugging, was there any part of that that played a role in in what that was going to look like? I had, and I still am a very like monogamous person. I really enjoy having a single person to kind of turn to. And I think that's probably because I never really had one stable person. So maybe unhealthy, but I was always kind of looking for that in a relationship. And I got it to a certain extent, as much as you can get from dudes fresh out of high school or fresh in college. Like I got my limit with every person that I dated and I did love them in their own ways. It wasn't until I had a really serious relationship with my previous boyfriend. I think I was 20 when I started dating him. And when we broke up, I was 24. So like four years. And it wasn't until like the last couple years of that relationship where alcohol started to play a major role. I had committed to this person and the pressure, funny enough to have it all figured out, I think I put on myself, but really like reality didn't allow for that. And it shouldn't. You're like 21 and 22 and 23 and you're supposed to be figuring out who you are and what do you want to do for money and what makes you really happy. The pressure to commit to one thing, I think pushed me to lean on my crutch a lot more with alcohol. The attraction that I had wore off because I started to feel less and less emotionally safe with them. And so I would just kind of numb out with drinking or I would stay after work with all my coworkers, worked at a restaurant and get like really drunk because I hated secrets because secrecy was a big and still is a big trigger for me. Like, I'm not sure that really anybody is like, I'm down with secrets, but like, I really don't vibe with it. I never felt and honestly, not until pretty recently felt like I could have a secret or that anything that was just for me to know uh, was like a bad thing. I just really didn't want to be that person. And so I'd come home from drinking and I'd go, this guy called me really hot and da 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 da. And like, it was just like word vomit to try to like not be a bad person. Who were you confessing to? My boyfriend. I would like come oh, home you were from drinking and be to like- him. Okay, okay. Yes. Okay, yes. got it, got it. Sorry. And it's not like I was like totally not playing part of it, but- I I say this to kind of answer that alcohol played a a part in my romantic relationships because it was the thing that I was the most focused on. It was the thing that I felt was a non-negotiable. Like I never, ever, 
ever thought, well, a lot of this wouldn't happen if you just didn't stay after work and drink with all your coworkers. I didn't even ever think that, which is such an interesting place to be now. It's so normal. It's so, when you say that, it, I, I kept thinking to myself, so often when people are asking about like what's going on or what's going on with my kid, you know, like why don't they see it? And like, it's literally the last thing you'd look at. You know, you have a problem. You just don't think that's the problem. Uh-huh. No, you're unhappy, right. but that's right. not why. But because it can't be that. It's, it's was and in society is so seen as a solution to everything. It is a solution to further your celebration. It is a solution to make your day less crappy. It is a celebration or a solution to like get through your boredom. It is a solution to literally everything. Did you ever see the show Scandal? Yes. With her red wine and popcorn at that. <laughs> I was overtaken. And it, I mean, there's lots of shows where this is the case, but that one in particular, because I was so obsessed with how amazing her her dress, like the, her fashion was just everything. Everything was so well done, like just the staging and all of it. And the size of her red wine glass, I was like, where were those? That's why I switched to drinking it out of the bottle. If I had had that, I just would have. And I remember like, Every time she was stressed or had some, and it was just this like, like, yeah, like we depict this as this romantic solution to any stress problem, whatever it is. And it's always like cozying up with a big blanket. And like, I mean, I know what alcohol looks like for me. I know what, what it would look like if I, if you put me in the same exact room with the same clothes and the same everything. And I know what would it would look like by the time that same amount of time would have passed. It wouldn't look like what was on the show, but it is portrayed as, like you said, it's portrayed as this incredible option that is available to everyone and that this is how we deal with our problems. Yeah. And also, it is something that I didn't realize this perspective until like quite recently. I did like a dry January pop-up shop where I had all things for somebody to do a dry January to take a month off alcohol. And a mom came in with her kids and her kids were like running around the store. And she was like, okay, hold on. She was like very hands-on parenting. So cool. Very iconic. Great outfit too. Very Olivia Pope, like the trench coat and everything. She said, okay, do you know why we're here? And they're like, no. And she's like, okay, we're here because one day you might get invited to a party and maybe you'll want to drink and maybe you won't. And this is a store for the maybe you won'ts. And I had never, ever seen a parent not just say, when you're old enough, you'll drink. And I think that that's so important because it's like, yeah, uh, not only is it marketed as a solution, but it's also taught to us as an assumption that we are going to partake and that not only are we going to, but it's going to be awesome. Like once we're old enough, like we got to get, we got to wait till we can get in the club and it's so cool to get carded. And it's all of these things that no wonder it can be a struggle. No wonder it's so common to wake up one day and go, what the heck am I doing? No wonder. It takes a lot to change that perspective too. So no wonder it's not always linear for you to step away, for you to come to, to terms with it. For me, in my relationships, although it was never the, well, maybe I should just take it off, you know, where I should just take a night off. It did start to seep in 
towards the end where I thought not only for the relationship, but just for myself, well, I should probably start, maybe I should do like a 30 day challenge or something. Maybe I should. And then when I couldn't, that's really when I started to understand that this was going to have an expiration date, but I didn't know what that would look like. How long did you make it? I think that the longest amount of time that I had done was probably like seven days. Okay. So you would get to seven days and what would happen for that 30-day challenge? It would be like a good slingshot when you just withhold or like you're white knuckling where you just pull back so hard and that resistance, you do nothing to soften it. You do nothing to, you just pull back, pull back. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. That when you don't, it propels you 10 times harder into the other direction. And that's usually what it would look like for me. Whether I was going, okay, I'm going to do a 30-day, and then at day seven, I'd go, well, I did a week, boom, and then I'd slingshot. Or I'd go, I'm going to take this week off, and I, day two, you know, would go, well, I didn't do it last night, boom. There was always a reason where I could make myself release that slingshot and I allowed myself to go that much further. And then the old, well, you wake up and you go, oof, I don't feel good. I said something I didn't. I I don't like what I'm doing. Well, yeah, that's because you went a little too hard. So there was always for me a reason and a rationale, which I think is really common. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hey, everybody, just want to jump in here and let you know about Lion Rock Recovery's specialized program for nurses who are struggling with alcohol use or substance use disorder or are just sober curious. We currently have a specialized program that works with nurses' trauma, nurses' scheduling, and even the importance of anonymity. For more information, go to lionrockrecovery.com, check out programs, specialized recovery programs, and there you will find our nurses program. You can also go to lionrockrecovery.com and chat with us or call us at 800-258-6550 to find out more. How do you feel today about 30-day challenges? My overall theme or belief about sobriety is really that it is just as unique as your fingerprint. Your sober story, your discovery before recovery, your trial, your salsa, it is so incredibly unique to you. And you can try to match your fingerprint with someone else and you can get a couple of those ridges similarly. But really at the end of the day, it takes you understanding and knowing and being willing to put in the work to figure out what works for you. So if a 30-day works for you and it helps get you clearer on what you like or what you don't like, amazing. If it doesn't work for you, I still think amazing because like it didn't work for me for a long time and it still gave me clarity. It still gave me clarity on how shaky I was. It still gave me clarity and validating that this was something that I could not go without. And even when I slingshotted, you know, at the end of my seven days, I still think it gave me clarity because it showed that I was not doing it with the right intention. I was doing it just to kind of say I could, not to really build a beautiful foundation for something that could be linear from that point on. I really feel like it's it can be a really important ingredient in your recipe for sobriety. It just depends on how you move through the rest of 
baking that cake that is your sober story. Right. I agree that there's sobriety looks so many different ways. And and I love a good 30 day challenge because I think that I think it gives you a lot of information. Whether you yeah. stick with it or not, it's it's fact finding. And fact finding on the journey is really important. Fact finding on on our journey period, whether it's related to sobriety or not, is really important. Oh, I turns out I don't like this. Oh, I do. You know, I do like this. You talked about I had a feeling I that I was coming to the end. You know, I, I call it circ- I was circling the drain. What did you know about either sobriety or people who stopped drinking or any the topic at all as you approached what was your, you know, sobriety date? I really worked through a lot of preconceived notions or assumptions about what I had grown up seeing, which was that alcoholics were villains, alcoholics were bad people, alcoholics were people who ruined things. And not know. I mean, but it is also the alcohol. It's the person who takes it, but it's the alcohol. Our souls are so much more than just being an alcoholic or being addicted to something. We're so deep and layered. And I think that I started to understand that because I felt so unaligned, like what did my lining look like? Like when I was aligned, like what was that going to look like? And what did I want? And how many different layers did I need to get right with? I think looking at that helped me release or further my understanding that most people probably have the same layered alignment and that it just wasn't a one simple thing. Around the time that I had started kind of internally going, this isn't great for me, this is making me rocky, was when I fell in love with my best friend, who's my girlfriend today. We're both sober and our sobrieties happened very close together, which is a beautiful thing. And really what helped me was she had been in sobriety before. So she had entertained it. I had been her best friend when she was in it. So I had seen her do it. I had seen her life improve. And so like falling in love and having a relationship with somebody who was that way, she was drinking again when we fell in love. So then also seeing that her journey isn't linear and that kind of like the before and afters of that was interesting to see and I think help informed my opinion of like what it would look like to be sober or what a sober person could be. I also started seeing like I really do think that the universe like started putting these examples right in front of my face to break the stereotypes. Somebody had sent me a clip of a comedian, Nikki Glaser, who I love, watch her stuff, she's hilarious, sent me a clip to like, just because it was funny, not anything else, just simply because it was funny, they knew I liked her. And she in that same clip was talking about how she doesn't drink. So I was like, oh, whoa, stereotype shattered a little bit that shattered a little bit. And I could let in this possibility that like, well, that's a female comedian who doesn't drink and she's really funny and I like her and I relate to her. And there was like a connection there. And then I got to I read Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman. I forget exactly how I heard that. Somebody else, some other celebrity had been reading it or something. And so I ordered it. And that also allowed me to break my stereotype because I think I just had never honestly really seen women who were sober, who were fun and successful and feminine and in the entertainment industry and liked makeup and liked going out and went to parties. I had never built 
a future me that included that. I had always seen it had always been like I was going to win an Oscar and celebrate with a martini and I was going to champagne bottle pop and I was going to get a fitting and have a glass of wine afterwards. And so I had never seen anybody doing those things and not seeing that drink tethered to their hand. And so to start to see these women who had the things, had the show, had the fame and not have alcohol be in their glass, it was like my mind started to melt in like the best way possible because I also didn't realize how limiting I was. Like I was limiting my future so much on a drink. It wasn't like it it was like overnight. It was like reading a lot of books and then listening to different podcasts that I started to really allow myself to say, well, I could build a future where I could build an Oscar win where I could build all of these things that I was so tethered to and untethered the drink and untethered the escapism kind of lifestyle. And while all of that was happening, I was falling more in love. And this was the first woman I had ever dated. I was coming to terms with like the fact that I was feeling love and attraction in a way that I never had. And whoa, what does that feel like? And and it's also an overwhelming feeling that I don't want to numb out of. I don't want to tap out of that. I want to feel it. But by that time, it had been so habitual to tap out and our relationship was built on drinking and splitting a bottle of wine and listening to music. And it was so hard to navigate that. Like it wasn't a clear cut. Well, we're just going to stop and then it's going to be great. And then I'm going to win an Oscar and blah, blah, blah. You know, it wasn't like a perfect, easy answer. But I did, you know, coming to like my moment of clarity was really like having everything just at a boiling point. By this time, I had understood some things you can't un-understand. Like I had read some things that like you can't unsee, listened to some viewpoints that you can't unagree with. I was still drinking in the way as if I didn't know and that I hadn't read and that I hadn't seen. That friction just led to internal chaos, like a very, very, what am I doing and why am I doing this? I went to meet Sarah's parents for Thanksgiving and I was so nervous and I was meeting my girlfriend's parents for the first time and also I'm dating a woman and is there going to be anything different? Like how am I going to carry myself and are they going to be totally chill with it because she's never really brought home anybody too? And how is this also during a pandemic, you know, just like a lot of fear and anxiety and I didn't have any tool other than what I had programmed myself to reach for, which was a bottle. And so I got really drunk, like very, I mean, we all got pretty drunk, but I got drunk and insecure. And we, Sarah and I had a fight in the guest bathroom and her parents heard it. And I just was like, woke up the next day. And I think because my pot of knowledge was so full on that, this is not going to work for you. It was just the drop that just, it just overflowed. And I knew that I could either keep drinking and keep escaping the things that I didn't like about my life and also ruin the things that I did like about my life. Or I could really try to build something new and create a life I wanted to be present for. And that meant not tapping out with alcohol. It was so uncomfortable and it was so scary because I didn't 
know how I was going to do it, but I didn't, for the first time, didn't care that I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew I was just going to like get through right now. And I turned to the tools that I have heard from the books and just even like the good old fashioned, like one day at a time, I leaned into that. And Sarah went out of town with her family the next day. And I drove back and I, for 10 days, it was the longest time I had ever not had alcohol. And I didn't tell a single person that I wasn't drinking. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my sister. I didn't tell Sarah. I didn't tell anybody. I just didn't want to jinx it almost. Every time I wanted to drink, I like cleaned out a cabinet. Every time I wanted to leave, I just like didn't. Like I just didn't didn't do it. And that wasn't easy. It was really freaking hard. But I listened to so many podcasts and I listened to people's stories and it gave me this sense of like, okay, they went through the frustration that I'm going through now of like relearning and they did it. So like I can do it. What's another day? Like what's another day? If you wake up tomorrow and you really want to like, fine, go for it. But like go to bed tonight and see how you feel in the morning. And I think I also started a business that I always wanted to start that was very hands-on. It's called Oh Shit Kit. I hope I can cuss on this, but it was all these little kits for when you go, oh shit, I need a tampon or I need a safety pin or whatever. And all the money that I would have spent on alcohol, I started to put into something so that I could order the stuff on Amazon or order the stickers. And so I really had something very visual and physical and in my world that I could see where my time and my money was going. And I think that that really helped me understand that look at what you can do when you don't do that. Look at what this thing that you've been thinking about for years and wanting to make and talked, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to do this thing. Look, you're doing it because you're not doing that. I feel like that kind of helped eliminate the weight that I think a lot of people feel and that I know I had anticipated feeling of like, well, what am I going to do if I don't drink? I like had an answer right in front of me. And it made me feel really good. Sarah came back from out of town and I had not drank it for 10 days. And I went and I met her and said, I don't know how this is going to affect you or what we are, but I have a problem with alcohol and I haven't drank it in 10 days and I don't want to start again. And I don't know what that looks like, but I know that I can't continue to meet and hang out in the same way that we're used to. And she went, oh my God, me too. Like, thank God. I don't want to do this either. Like, I don't want to drink anymore. I did sobriety. I did it. I saw how good it was. And I think that I want to do it again. And so her sober date is 10 days after mine. And we have been so fortunate to have each other and lean on each other and build a life that we both wanted to be present for. And to get to have somebody who just sees the perspective with you, I think is a really big reason that my streak has been so linear because I know it's not that way for everyone. But yeah, I mean, having a partner that also wants to be present and their best version of themselves without alcohol is a huge 
blessing. It makes a huge difference. I mean, there's data that talks about going on a diet or quitting smoking or any of those things. And if your partner is doing them with you or working out, there's data that says like the the chances of success are so much higher if the other person is doing it with you. However, for people who are like, great, my partner's not going to do that. It is not a, does not mean it can't happen or it won't happen or it doesn't work. Just it is, it is something that makes life easier. You have talked in your podcast and and in some of the things about feeling that labels hold you back. I'm I'm putting words in your mouth, but can you tell me a little bit about that? What what is for me something that's confusing and, and so I'm seeking clarity is when we talk about sobriety and we say I have a sobriety date and we talk about, again, the category of symptoms uh, that people struggle with that we call alcohol use disorder. There's this fear that I see people having around saying I'm an alcoholic or I struggle with alcohol. How, I, have an, I had an alcohol problem or I'm in recovery, whatever it is, whatever, whichever of the things. And I'm curious what the fear is if we're calling it sobriety, if we're saying, if we're if we're calling it being in recovery, if we're, we're using that language, calling it a sobriety date, what's the fear around, or the, I'm using fear, but maybe it's a different word. What's the resistance or, or, or decision around how we talk about it? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I'm happy to like further clarify because I think it's important. I'm not against labels. I just don't believe you need them in order to be healthier. Got it. For me, that was really, really, really a big one that kept me in a cycle for longer than I think I could have been in it. Got it. But I think to like elaborate on people's fear into my own, one, I think the fear is subsiding, which is really good because I think the fear was always to be stigmatized. Totally. To always be seen as like, well, if I say, because so many people view alcoholics as this one thing, Then if I say that I'm that, even if I have the checklist, even if I feel like that's accurate, people don't have the information to be able to see me other than the one version that they've been spoon fed by movies, by maybe their own family experiences. So I think that was the fear. I mean, I had that fear of like, well, if I say that I'm this, then people are just going to assume that I'm that. And so that's how I came to really believe that you don't have to say it in order to like still do the things to get healthy. Like if you don't want to say you're an alcoholic, I really believe that there's no bouncer standing in the way of recovery that says like you need to say this before you can access all of these healthy, cool tools. I don't believe in that. I think that you can do everything that you want to in your life and not have to share a label so that other people can digest your best version of yourself easier. Like it's not your responsibility to give people something to critique, to further question. You don't have to do it. I really think in the same way that gender identity and sexuality is so layered and so unique to each person, labels with sobriety and recovery and alcoholic and addict and alcohol disuse and all of that is just the same way that I believe that all that LGBTQIA and all the pronouns are just as valid. It's just as valid in recovery and sobriety to like use them. One is not more diluted or less important. 
than the other. So I think that's really like my biggest point, as well as just saying, I don't want to label it. Like, I don't want to have to put a label on it. I think your journey is just as important and just as hard and just as challenging as somebody who has no problem saying like, I'm in recovery and I'm on this step and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like that's my biggest. That makes that makes total sense. So people will often ask me, Ashley, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic or if I have an alcohol problem? And I'm like, I don't know. Does alcohol cause you problems? Well, then maybe you have an alcohol problem. And if alcohol is causing problems in your life, you may have a problem with alcohol. I don't know if that makes you an alcoholic. It's just a problem. The the two things are connected, right? And I think that also people have this idea that if they admit to their counselor or to one other person, like I have alcoholism, that they have to go around telling everybody or, you know, like, like there's, there are some of these myths. And I, I love that you bring up the stigma piece because one of the reasons that I think it's so important that people who can, who want to, and are willing are out saying, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. I've been in recovery or I'm a, I'm a person in law. How I say it is I'm a person in long-term recovery. I think to change what people know about alcoholics because what people know about alcoholics is them in active addiction. But as soon as people get sober, they stop talking about it. One of the things that we lose is the ability to reshape this narrative that we look, we are only the destroyers of things. We as the vessel that when we put the poison in our bodies, turns us into whatever version of shit show you are, that that's that's the face of alcoholism. And my hope is that alcoholism gets a new face, which is that it's all these people you can recover from it and that you can be a different person and it can be part of your past and it doesn't have to be part of your future and all the things. The reason that you cited you were willing to even look at the quit lit and willing to even picture a future without alcohol was because you saw someone, you saw other women who you admired doing that. If you didn't admire those women or you saw them in their worst moments, then they never brought it up. You wouldn't have that. And so the beauty yeah. and, and the hope I have is that people like you and people like me and people out there talking about, yeah, I'm recovering. Like other people start to go, oh, so the stigma piece doesn't make sense because I know so-and-so and and they're not like that. They don't fit that. We get to change. We get to develop this new narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. It really is. And I, I, I think it's like going there. Like I really do. I look around and I see so many people. I mean, even just, I'm like, I will be three years sober at the end of this month. And in the last three years, the amount of people that have come out and said that they aren't drinking or that they're in recovery and using all these kind of this rainbow of labels that still give permission for all these other people to go and try it, a life without substances. It's so cool to see. I really do think it's just going to keep becoming the norm. I agree with you. I think this is happening and I, I'm excited and I am grateful that I get to be part of that and with people like you and, and that we get to be sharing this message. You have a podcast that people can check out. What is the name of your podcast? Where can people find you? Yes. You can follow me personally at Kate Madry on Instagram and the Clear Headed Podcast is where you can listen to 30-minute episodes of people's moments of clarity surrounding their sobriety. And you can follow on clearheaded.co on Instagram. I'm 
building the goop of sobriety. I want everybody to know that it is okay and fun and chic and trendy to build a life without alcohol and clear-headed gives you the tools to do that. Live a life (laughs) clear-headed. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody go check out clear-headed. So you're saying that my life skills are, are questionable? <laughs> I am saying that, yes. Just to just to bring everybody up to speed, <laughs> minutes ago, <laughs> we were scheduled to record the outro for this episode. Right. Ashley is on a swivel chair trying to take down a fire or a smoke detector, hmm. not particularly successfully. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to jump in here. I was following all the obvious indicators. It would not release in order for me to stop the loud beeping that was happening. Mm -hmm. So couldn't figure out what to do because my office is in an apartment complex. So I put it outside in the hallway. Turns out you could still hear it. And then there's a field. Uh Uh-huh. That's throw that's reachable by throw by flight. That's within a throwable distance. <laughs> it's within, sure, it's, certainly. It's it's uh, reachable by arm flight. And <laughs> I threw the God, this doesn't it doesn't capture no. the intention. You know what I mean? No, sure. I threw the ML. <laughs> functioning <laughs> fire detector smoke detector off the balcony onto the the so that i could retrieve it after right right yes because it's a way detecting from, you were detecting yeah. the fire yes so i out so, there out there in case you never know could be a smoke <laughs> inhalation issue anyway so i threw it it bounced it went into a bush and it's out there and i we were just discussing what would happen <laughs> if and when someone knocks on my door <laughs> Ma'am, you threw your smoke detector off a balcony onto a field while it was misfiring because you couldn't open it. Walk us through this. Tell me about how you're going to do your podcast next and tell people how to live their lives. I mean, I'm going to go get it. After. Yeah, sure. I am yeah. going to get, get it. I will retrieve it. Well, guess who's going to be there in less than a week and would love to have a working smart <laughs> detector? <laughs> you are in luck, my friend, because Ooh, there is one in a backup. Great. In the living room, <laughs> which is about three feet away. You uh, always want less smoke detectors. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, like to, you like to go minimalist. I mean, you know, if you had heard it beep, I wear one on my person at all times. So <laughs> fine. Can't be too safe. There's some like really really good dad jokes in there about like being a smoke show or like (laughs) oh 100 of the time when you take the stud detector out you have to make it stick to yourself yeah 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 what 100 (laughs) of the time that's that's also by law oh sorry kate i didn't see that this isn't this wasn't part of the plan but you know that's how life goes see we could we could really this is a transition planning you could your best laid plans <laughs> what's the saying shit no i'm gonna let you, you figure this one out no nope. didn't you see my eyes no i did don't you and i just i wanted to let you s- just swim a little longer do you think that they are going to have my fingerprints on the smoke detector uh-huh look at that she's giving me the wink because that's a perfect transition into our episode you're not supposed to reveal my secrets no i like to let the audience behind all the curtains do you know i can wink with both eyes <laughs>
So can everyone. <laughs> no, that's this. Yes. No, you're, no, you know, you're thinking of raising eyebrows. No, everyone, I'm not. Everyone can close one eye or the other eye. Making... <laughs> yes. No, I don't think that's true. Yes, very Write much. It. Write in. Tell us if that's true. <laughs> I don't think it is. We need an expert who can just do an episode about whether <laughs> every cannot... human being can close one eye. Botox might raise. mess with some either. of the functionality of your eye. <laughs> no, I don't have but, that low. You know, born born yeah you can close each eye independently <laughs> but back to fingerprints back to I, fingerprints i liked kate's analogy about everybody's sobriety being unique as that people have to find their own version of it i think that's more doable with more options available these days as well you got more than one version i mean there's certainly common themes and ideas and thoughts and configurations and attitudes and feelings. <laughs> She's just hanging me out to dry. I, I see. Just, I was just watching it. Okay. So I love that there are so many different ways to be in recovery and to be sober and to be healing. And I think there is only one requirement across the board for every single program, fingerprint, whatever. This is the ridge that's in common, which is honesty. And I think that you have to have rigorous honesty, I guess, rigorous honesty and an open mind. Those two things, I think, are paramount to finding your recovery. And if you keep those two things, and they're hard to keep at times, sometimes you think you're being honest with yourself and you're not. And and other times, deep down, you know, you're not being honest with yourself. Other times, you're just being honest with one person, which is, you know, okay. It comes in different ways. But whatever form it comes in, that honesty and open-mindedness are paramount to any any program at all whatsoever in making them successful. And I like that we have a young person out there talking about all the different ways to be in recovery because there are lots of different ways to do it. And I am apparently getting into the old fogey, old timer, fogey, old school way of life area of my life. And I think it's really important to elevate and talk about other options for people because I don't ever want people to think that they shouldn't do anything because they don't like the one way they've heard about to get sober. Well, I loved Kate's interview. I encourage everybody to check out her podcast, Clearheaded. This week, we are rooting for you. I know that's a shock, but we're rooting for you this week, especially with the holidays coming. I don't know about you, Ashley, but I'm ready to wrap this whole year up and just call it. I don't know. I've spoken to some high-ranking government officials, and it's possible. Mm. It might be happening. You've affected the calendar. I'm tired. Yeah. And that's what I wrote yeah. in my letter as I said, I'm tired. And they did take that into consideration. So I'm hopeful, yeah. you know. I, I, I think the people <laughs> I think the people in the high level government are tired too. Yeah. I know. That's why they were game to do it. They look like they should be retired. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Come on, Congress. You're 90. What are we good? You're a hundred years old. <laughs> Well, well, Ashley, is there anything you want to leave the people with this week? Proper fire safety. (laughs) Number one, check your your smoke detectors. Mm. Number two, know how to disable them. Because when you don't, (laughs) things happen. You have to throw them in a field. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good thing no one has ring cameras around here. (laughs) However you find your recovery is great. And just remember to be honest with yourself and keep an open mind.
I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.